It's good to be with you all this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, I think we can all safely say that summer has officially arrived in Central Oregon. Because it is hot out there, and it's hot up here, too. It's like a double sun effect with these lights that are on me here. Um, But it's good to be with you all. I hope you're doing well. I hope you turned the water up on your lawn. Uh, Yeah, it's hot. It's nice, though. Man, it's been so nice to, the rain's been great, we've enjoyed it, but we've, it's nice to see the sun out and the kids are outside running around. We, in our house, we have, I think something happened in the 90s, everybody was like, let's all plant trees that are really small right now in the 90s, and then we won't think about what will happen in like 30 years, which is where you'll have these massive trees that take over like your entire yard. So we have these three enormous trees that take up our little yard, which is awesome in the summer because we got nice shade and we can run in the backyard then in the fall it's just like constant raking but for right now it's great so 90s houses big trees great stuff good and bad but we love it uh, and we're excited for for nice some nice warm weather and the kids can go outside and play in the water and all that cool stuff so it's been really great if you would take your bibles and go ahead and flip to romans chapter 12 romans chapter 12 so uh, if, you're, if you're here for the first time or you uh, haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off two weeks ago in talking about the church and talking about why we do church. And we're in a series called Life Together where we're kind of exploring and unpacking uh, the New Testament's picture of church. And we're looking at the early church and what they did and, and drawing from a lot of different resources to kind of understand how is this church uh, supposed to function. Uh, And kind of going back to see if we distilled or boiled down the church to its uh, main core purpose, what would that look like? And obviously culture dictates some changes and some necessities, but we also know that at the core, if we get back to the the true vision of the church, not that we're not there, but learning what that was, and to try to understand why church, why we do this church, and if it's thriving and it's healthy, what does the church look like? So two weeks ago, um, we talked about uh, a few things. Uh, just kind of recap where we were at, just kind of catch us up. Number one, we talked about this New Testament term for church is ecclesia, which doesn't mean necessarily church. The word church comes from a German word uh, later on, but the word ecclesia refers to a gathering of people for a central purpose. So in ancient Greece, it was a political gathering, people coming together to, to talk about the direction for the city. So this word ecclesia means the assembly, the gathering, and for the church, our central purpose would be kingdom mission. Uh, two, We talked about this church being this large group of people, diverse in population, with a few leaders being the apostles. And we discussed, with the help of Stott, a commentator, a few defining characteristics of the early church in Acts 2, 42 through 47, and kind of this like honeymoon phase that it's in. Um, And then four, uh, we talked about the characteristics of the church that that is led and compelled by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is Holy Spirit-led. I mean, the church is Holy Spirit-led, Right. So we worship the Trinity, we worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is what empowers the church to do mission. And then five, we talked about how the church was doing actions not out of forced obedience, but out of a need and care that arose in the population. So as needs arose, the church would sell their possessions and meet those needs of people who were in um, difficult or hardships. And then we briefly discussed um, issues facing the church today, and if we were to sum up this sermon in one sentence... It would be this. Next slide for me. The church is gathering of people from all backgrounds empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve and care for the world around them. Or to put it much more simply, the church is a kingdom community. 
We can't separate the kingdom of God and the mission of the kingdom of God from the church. So the church is a kingdom community doing kingdom mission, and we'll talk a little about today. But before we get there, uh, let's um, look at Romans chapter 12. So where we're at, and, and if you're picking up kind of right here, plopping it right down into Romans, uh, Paul has given this big theological summation of everything that God has done in our lives, the work he's done through salvation, where we were at before Christ, where we're at in following Christ. And so the first 11 chapters of Rome, Romans are just Paul unpacking all of this really intense theology. And then he gets to 12, and he goes, I appeal to you, therefore... So in light of your life being transformed and changed, verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, this is to the community in Rome, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. Having gifts or abilities or talents that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us, prophet, let us prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Jesus, you brought us together today to be in your presence with your people. I pray that you'd bless us. I pray that you'd speak to us. God, we pray that you would help us to understand more of this community that you've given us, both here in this building right now, God, and also um, throughout uh, your, com- your community, your kingdom community, God, throughout the world. Help us to understand that today. Help us to walk in truth with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, our story starts today, unassumingly, in Charleston, South Carolina, at a Veterans Affairs Clinic. This is a picture of it. I don't know why I did a picture, but I was just like, let's just do it. I always do a picture. And there's not a baseball reference this Sunday, so you should all be thankful about that. Uh, The Mets are playing right now, so I just want to tell you how committed I am to teaching you. I'm here instead of watching that game. That's a big deal. Okay. Uh, A man named Carter Mercher, the senior medical advisor of the U.S. Department of Affairs, shortly after becoming a supervisor of the VA, Mercher, started to notice an alarming trend. Patients at a VA hospital in South Carolina were dying from colon cancer at a far greater rate than anywhere else in the country. Colon cancer is highly treatable if it's caught early. Mercer had options. He could remove those in charge of the clinic and find someone with a proven history of treating this cancer successfully and have them run the clinic. He could assume that people simply need to be taught more about how easily preventable colon cancer was and hope that this would cause an uptick in testing. Or... He could just continue on the same course and chalk it up to, this is just how things are done. Instead of these options, Meacher, a believer in asking questions and observing rather than finding magic bullets to fix symptoms, decided to get down to the details. And this hospital, like others, sent out colon cancer test kits to those in its system who were high risk, knowing that if they could catch the cancer early, their chance of survival would increase. 
Meacher, knowing this, decided to see the room where the test samples were received, which sounds like kind of a crappy job, if you ask me. He noticed that a pile of return... I had to put that in there, okay? I had re- he noticed that a pile of return kits with a notice, insufficient postage, returned to sender. So while some kits had been received, several others were being returned to the hospital because they lacked the correct postage. No one had realized that for all the samples to be returned, they'd each require two stamps rather than one. Once the Charleston BA began adding an additional stamp, it became the leader in colon cancer detection. So what we find here is that there was an issue going on And this individual, who's now a senior medical advisor for the Veteran Affairs, decided he wanted to get to the core of what was going on. Now, he could just treat symptoms. He could go, let's just fix what's going on at the top and hope that that person figures it out. But instead, he kind of went, let's figure this out. Let's go to the very place where we're kind of functioning and testing and receiving all these kids. And in doing so, he figured out there was a really simple solution to saving thousands of lives. And it was a simple additional postage stamp. And after that, all of a sudden, this VA clinic had systems in place, but one little tiny detail caused it to thrive and become a leader. Now, if you've spent much time, you're going to ask, what does this have to do with the church? And we're going to get there. Relevance is coming, so hang with me. Uh, if you spent much time looking at church statistics, you will find a grim picture. In the last 20 years, the amount of people who call themselves, quote-unquote, practicing Christians, that means they go to church, um, they would say, a practicing Christian would say something like, I identify as Christian. I agree strongly that faith is very important and that uh, their life, and very important in their life, and they've attended churches in the past month. So that's practicing Christians. It fell to its lowest point with one quarter of people considering themselves practicing Christians. This group swapped places with another group, non-practicing Christians. 42% of Americans who consider themselves Christians now do not consider themselves practicing Christians, with 32% of people saying they do not consider themselves Christian at all. In a recent Gallup poll in 2017, church membership fell below 50% for the first time in eight decades. 80 years, this is the first time in 2017, this is pre-pandemic, 2017 was at its lowest point in 80 years. And this has led to church leaders to ask the question, why? Why? In 2020, following the pandemic, one-third of practicing Christians stopped going to church completely. The decline in church attendance following the pandemic is the same across all demographics, ideologies, ages, and income. So welcome to church. We're so glad you're here. You're apparently a part of a, a remnant. Yeah, nice. Over the past 30 years... Which, if you're watching online, it's not if you're not here. It's we still love you. It's just a whole thing. Anyway, so over the past 30 years... We've seen the rise of six distinct groups who are leaving the church for various reasons. And this comes from Ronald Rollheiser. He gives us six different categories that people fall into. He says there are the nuns who refuse to, to identify with any faith. If you were asked them on a census, they would say, I don't have any religion. I don't have any practicing faith at all. And so church doesn't really go with them because they don't have faith. And there's the duns who would say, I'm just done with religion. I've had a bad experience. I've grown up in anger the church. The uh, intoxicating power of culture, the draw of culture, and just self-sufficiency says, I'm just kind of done, I don't really need it, so I'm out. And then there's a spiritual but not religious. They say, I value spirituality, I think God is great, but I just don't think the church is important. Uh, They value individuality and freedom. 
They value trust in their own search and experience, which is a distinctly American idea, by the way, the individualistic. Do you know that the U.S. is the most individualistic nation in the world? Meaning we only trust our own experience with things. So what does that mean? You have a bad experience, it's all over, right? Indifferent, they say, I'm numb to religion. They're just self-sufficient, the world is enough, and the world gives me enough to kind of numb my feelings and draw towards a community at all. And then there's people who are angry. I had a bad experience in a church, or I've seen bad examples of church, so I don't go anymore. If you go online, you Google, why did you leave church? You will see like a million conversations of people saying they left church after having a bad experience. None of it is theological in nature. It's all because I, had, I went to this youth group one time, and this person yelled at me or said something negative to me, and so I ditched church entirely. Said they're done. They're abused by leaders. They're treated poorly by the church because of their gender, their race, their sexual orientation, their involvement or non-involvement in politics, pastoral abuse and mistreatment in a pastoral situation, others. And then there's the marginalized. Those who would say, I'm outside the understanding, empathy, and spiritual scope of the churches. The church doesn't understand me. It doesn't try to understand me, so I'm outside of that whole influence entirely. It includes everyone from the LGBTQ to the homeless. They feel consciously or unconsciously that their life is too messy to be a part of a community, and they feel an outcast to religion and to our churches. Now, why? What is drawing people away from the community? And we know that ultimately, being a part of church is not the marker of someone having a strong faith in Jesus. We understand that. It's not like we go to church to kind of stamp the box and then go home and say, I'm a Christian, go to church, and then I go home. It's bigger than that. The church as a community must kind of understand that this is the state of our culture that we're in. Now, there's a few people who have some theories as to why this has happened. One, a popular philosophical thinker in a recent conversation, I don't want to say his name, so we'll call him Porton Jeterson. Uh, Christianity tried to make itself relevant, and doing so became the uncool person at the party. This is that, 20, that 2000, like, hip mega church that had all the cool lights and the flashing and things like that, and all the cool screens and the music and all this stuff like that. They're like, hey, guys, Christianity's cool. Like, come on. They're like, dude, you're weird, man. Like, what's going on? And it's like that person is trying really, really hard to be cool and trying hard to be relevant. And he said they became the uncool person trying to be cool at the party. And in trying to make itself relevant, the church became more irrelevant than it had ever been. He also said this, though, which I think was interesting. The church didn't give people anything to do, didn't invite them into any sort of new reality. Instead, it invited them into something called consumer Christianity, as Dallas Willard calls it, where you treat church like your favorite restaurant. You come to the doors, you sit down, you receive a product, and then you leave and you go, that was good, or that was bad. And then you go home and figure out, ah, well, as long as it continues to be good, I'll keep going. But once something else happens, new management, or I don't know, they take this whole like vegan kick with their restaurant, we're kind of like, ah, I'm out. Like no one stays at a restaurant because the people there are really nice, right? You're like, oh, I keep going to this restaurant because everybody there is so great. If the food's terrible, you don't go, right? But church kind of becomes that. Yeah, people are great, but the sermon, you know, it's kind of, it's weird. This guy's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, and it's just kind of like, it's too much for me. Like, I don't want to do that. Or they go, ah, the music is too loud, or it's not loud enough. Or the church isn't political like I want it to be, or it's too political. And so they leave. 
And this consumer cruciate allows us to treat church like it's another product we receive instead of being it's a community of people who are flawed and imperfect, all working towards the kingdom of God. Instead, we go, sit down, receive, go. And then three, like I said, if you spent much time on social media and asking the question of why people leave the church, you will find that people become disillusioned with the church due to a negative church experience. And there's both, I think, validity and invalidity to that. For instance, I have bad experiences with people all the time. Like I work at a middle school. Most of it's a bad experience. Just kidding. But, hypothetically, let's just say it is for the purpose of this conversation. So you have this like, bad experience and you go, oh my gosh, I'm never going back there. And that just speaks to our individualism. We go, my experience is what I trust. So if I have a bad experience with somebody who calls himself a Christian, I therefore take all Christians and say, no, I don't want anything to do with these people. But there's also some validity to it. There's been some things the church has done to people or said to people or announced on social media that are harmful. That people go, I know that Jesus is not about that. So why is this person who constantly talks about how good God is in their life would say something so hurtful, so destructive, and so painful, or reject me because of the way that they live their life? Friends, the church can't be that. It can't. But it has become that in some ways. And we tried to avoid this in, in, in the early 2020s, and so what ends up happening is people take church, they have a bad experience, and this is not true of all people that have done this, but generally speaking, and they go, all right, I had this bad experience. Now I take church, and chunk by chunk, I break it up. Okay? Someone's having a tough time. It's all right. We love people. We love them. So, it's real life. That's the way it is. Here's the deal. When we deconstruct the church and we break it down to its bare bones, people go in this phase, this new movement in Christianity called deconstructionism, which is like when you were a kid and you were building Legos and you built this thing and you're like, this isn't what I built. And you go, oh boy, I got to take this whole thing apart and start over again. Or it's kind of like when you, has anybody built anything from Ikea? Okay. You look when you build something from Ikea and you get done, like, great, oh crap, it's backwards. You don't go, well, I guess we're just going to have a backwards countertop. Or a backwards cabinet. We gotta take it apart and we gotta rebuild it. But where did I mess up on this thing? Okay? And like, that's why deconstruction is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. It's going back and saying, okay, let's just, we got off base, let's go back to the, to the bear and let's figure out what's happening here. But then you're supposed to build it back. You're not supposed to stay there in that deconstruction. No one like builds a Lego set, takes it apart, is done with it and goes, ah, I just don't even wanna see what this is supposed to look like. Now let's build it back. And so as culture is starting to deconstruct and chuck the church out the window, my argument is to say deconstruction in and of itself is not a bad thing, provided that at the end of deconstruction, you in community try to build it back together. That's what we're trying to do right now. Okay? So what do we do? So the goal today is not to look at what the church hasn't done or the harm that it has caused as a result of poor leadership, well-intentioned, misguided people, or simple attempts to be cool. Rather, today, our continued conversation is what was the church supposed to do? Scott McKnight, in his book, Kingdom Conspiracy, says this, Kingdom mission means a local church is first and foremost a dwelling place of God. Kingdom mission is about the dwelling, the dwelling place of God in this world. Kingdom mission is about being the presence of God in this world. If we connect kingdom to church people, 
they've also defined church mission as identical to kingdom mission. In other words, the church's mission is the kingdom mission. So what does this mean? In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about different categories of what the Christian community should look like. And with kind of Romans as our backdrop, and we're going to revisit Romans in just a second, he has this one chapter where he talks about ministry. And he says, in the Christian community, here's what ministering would look like. So the word minister means to serve, and it's the word dekainia, same where we get the word deacon from. And it simply means to serve. So the church is meant to be a place of ministry, a place of service first and foremost. It's used throughout the Old Testament to describe people, objects, and general activities of those in the temple and those in the early church. In a sense, this word is a catch-all term for the work that the apostles, the church, Old Testament rabbis, and people of God did. So it's kind of an overarching term for just like what people did as believers, the idea of ministry. When we think of ministry, more often than not, we consider it a vocational title. They're a minister. But in reality, ministry was designed and described as a community effort to support and serve those in our congregation first, and then those who are outside of the community of faith. But there are issues. Ministry has opposing forces. Greed, selfish ambition, judgmentalism, condemnation, power struggles for influence and importance, the weak condemning the strong and the strong condemning the weak, bad teaching and incorrect understanding about, quote, spiritual gifts, individualism, where the individual's experience, feelings, and freedoms are valued supremely over the health of the whole community. Now, we love each individual, right? When you come in the community of God, the individualism kind of has to take a little bit of a backseat to the health of the community, so do we have an example of society that took place? Yes. 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a small book about Christian community called Life Together. And he wrote this book as a member and leader of an underground seminary and pastoral training school. And in it, he outlines many characteristics of a Christian community. And as I said before, he denotes a whole chapter to Christian community and ministry. And a Christian and the community of Christ must take must take place in ministry, must take part in ministry to fend off opposing toxic forces in the community of Christ. So he gives us a great list. Ministry, like I said, is a catch-all term. So you can make like a infinite list, but for the sake of time, because it's really hot in here and there's no donuts, the kids are freaking out. We'll go a little bit quicker, all right? Uh, we're gonna do seven different ones. Nothing upends the kids, man. The donuts were gone. It was like every kid was like, I don't why am I even here? You know? <laughs> Like, what are we even doing here? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, so we're going to give us seven different ones that Bonhoeffer talks about. Then we're going to go back to Romans and kind of round it off with a big picture of ministry in the church. So here we go. Number one, he says the first ministry, I mean, we're just going to automatically be pretty convicted by this. The ministry of holding one's tongue. He says this, to speak about a brother covertly is forbidden in the body of Christ. What if somebody got up here and just said that? Hey, talking to people behind their back is not allowed. Even under the cloak of help and goodwill, oh my gosh, I just really love this person, but I heard they're struggling with this, and I just can't believe they're struggling with it, but I wish I could help them. For it is precisely this guise that the spirit among, of hatred among brothers creeps in when it's seeking to create mischief. 
You want to give the spirit of hatred root in your church? Talk about people behind their back. It'll happen. But this is a contrast to our culture, right? Our culture says, I should be able to say what I want, when I want, about whoever I want. I should be able to put anybody on blast on social media for whatever they do. The church is not meant to be that way. If we choose to take on this ministry of holding our tongue, this will guard us from feeling like we need to judge and assess each other, or from finding a way to assert our power and influence over another individual. In the corporate world, this happens too. If I can make this other person seem like they're not as good at their job, then that means I can kind of slide in and maybe take that role. It's manipulative, really, is what it is. So Bonhoeffer invites the community of Christ to say the ministry of holding one's tongue can be a ministry. Deciding not to talk about people behind their back is a ministry. It's an act of service to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Then two, he says there's a ministry of meekness, humility, to have no opinion about ourselves and to think always well of others is great wisdom and perfection. So one of the other things that happens with individualism, too, is we don't trust anybody, right? We only trust ourselves. So I can't trust that the intentions of this person next to me are good. So to fend that off, what do we do to combat that lack of trust? Well, we, we always think well and highly of others. One of the things we work on in my school, and as, like I'm the leader of the, the equity team at the school, and one of the things we do is say, what if we just assume that kids are trying their best? What if we assume they're not out to drive me up the wall crazy, but they're trying as hard as they can to pay attention while being 12 years old? And what about the community of Christ? What if we assume that the people next to us have the best intentions in mind? They're not out to subvert what I want to do or repeat the behavior of someone else. If we look at someone as more sinful than us, we cannot serve them in humility. Oh, they're so much worse than I am. Well, then you're not serving them. Your assumption is that they're worse. So why serve? But if we have no opinion about ourselves and we think highly of others, this will help us to combat that. The service of the word is so highly valued, the community of Christ has very few preachers. Therefore, the ones who serve subtly behind the scenes, these are the ones we need more of and should value. Our culture values people up here teaching, talking, communicating, having charisma. It doesn't value the people that behind the scenes quietly carry in the donuts and put them back behind the sound booth, which somebody just did. You guys didn't even see that happen. That was amazing. But power... Obsession with authority and influence, no matter what the cause or idea we have, that they have to align themselves with. This is, a, this is a, a negative thing. Culture says it's all about preserving power. The humble are not recognized and appreciated. Only grand gestures are valued in the culture at large. I want to be an influencer. I want to have more authority. It works in the corporate world. It doesn't work in the church. Coming in and striving for your own ambition doesn't work in the community of Christ. It's destructive to it. Third, the ministry of listening. This is the one that I think I've been thinking about like for like last week. I'm just like, I don't listen. I talk too much, which you're not surprised by that. Uh, Just as love of God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. 
People often consider as a teacher you should always say something, but sometimes the greatest service is just listening. Bonhoeffer says this, he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon enough find himself unwilling to listen to God. Yikes. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and his own follies. Yowzers. Bonhoeffer doesn't mince words. But the culture doesn't value this as much. We are constantly distracted with media. We don't know how to have a conversation effectively anymore. We spend so much time in school teaching people how to listen to each other. We don't know how to live without making assumptions about somebody else. While they're talking, we're already thinking, like, how come, what do I need to say next? Or what is this person trying to say? Instead of just sitting there and listening, or like in the case of often when my wife and I talk, I end up, she's talking, and I just end up slowly looking out the window. And then she goes, are you even listening to me? And I'm like, yeah, 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 totally. Not so much, unfortunately. We're not good at listening. It's like we have to say something, we have to shout to be noticed. Listen to your brother will help you, or your sister will help you listen to God. For the ministry of helpfulness, be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. This means simple assistance in trifling matters. We have to know that there's going to be times when we're going to be called to do things that are helpful in the moment and to take it upon ourselves to do that. But our culture says, no, 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 no. Take care of your needs first. Your schedule is sacred. Your time is sacred. Work yourself to the bone every day your job and climb the corporate ladder. Never make time for a community to assess so you can help somebody you need and then retire when you're 70 and try to put it back together then. Unfortunately, it's too late. Right now, the ability to be interrupted by God and serve other people in our community when, I, when the help arises is a godly ministry, being helpful. Five, he says, the ministry of bearing. For the person who's not following Jesus, the other person never becomes a burden at all. So if someone doesn't know Jesus, the person next doesn't become a burden. He or she simply sidesteps every burden that others may impose upon them. Our culture says, don't make your life harder. Make it easier. Get people out of your life if they're causing you issues. Just get, get them out of there. Don't trust anybody. Move them out. They're annoying. Get rid of them. To do weird stuff, ask them to leave. Don't help someone who is struggling. They're just going to take advantage of you. Judge people for their failures and only look at them through that lens. And if someone is screwing up, kick them to the curb. Now nah, they got all these issues. Let's just get rid of them. That's, I mean, you couldn't find a more antithetical approach to following Jesus than that. Talking to, to students sometimes is crazy. We talk about like how we don't really do the Pledge of Allegiance in the school anymore, and it gets kids really, really riled up. And we say, what if somebody comes into school and they don't believe in God? How, how do you, like, what do you do with that? If they have to say the Pledge of Allegiance, they don't believe in God, and this one kid goes, too bad. They can leave. This is a kid who goes to Bible study, right? So you're like, okay, let's unpack that. The notion is, if you don't agree with me, if you don't ascribe to my theology, get out. Leave. Go find somewhere else. But that should burden the church. The church should desire instead to walk with people through this stuff. When someone falls and messes up, it's not like we go, oh, well, you know, they tried. We tried to restore them. It was great. But, you know, it's just not going to work. There's too many issues. Let's just have them leave and go on to somewhere else. They'll find a church somewhere else they can go to. No. What if instead the church goes, this person's struggling? 
Their marriage is falling apart. They're struggling with addiction. Wow. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, my call is to serve that person by walking alongside them and bearing that burden with them. But if you, if you value your individualism, you're not going to do that. Jesus says to us in the community of God, bearing your burdens, you who are spiritual should restore the one who is struggling. So instead of trying to get away from people who cause us issues, what if the church said, how can we come alongside and bear that burden with them? This also involves that person at times also deciding that they want to be restored in that community together. And then six, the ministry of proclaiming. What we're concerned with here is free communication of the word from person to person. This is that time when someone's going down a path they shouldn't go down. You go, listen, I just want to talk to you about this as a friend. I think you're going down a bad path here. We know that that's part of our service too. Yes, listening, more often than not. But when somebody's going through something that we see, they're kind of going down a dangerous path, you should have the boldness to be able to say, listen, I, I, I want to talk to you about this. The problem in our culture is, and I'm guilty of this, we don't really like conflict. And so we're afraid that once we go and talk about it, that person's going to explode. Like, oh, no, now I go, oh, man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, yada, yada. And so we never have like a truthful conversation with people because we're afraid of how they're going to react. But if it's taking place in a community of love and care and bearing burdens, then when we have that conversation, that what's wrapped around is the idea of love. I don't, I'm not doing this to judge you. I'm not doing this to tear you down. I just love you and I want to talk about this. That is beautiful. That is powerful. That is helpful. Don't do it all the time. But in the moment, if God provides that person in your life you have a relationship with, you want to talk about, do it. We call it, we call it in, a, in young life, we talk about the right, earning the right to be heard. You spend time building relationships that you can have those tough conversations, and it's not from this place of judgment. Last, number seven, the ministry of authority. Bonhoeffer says this, Jesus made authority in the fellowship dependent upon brotherly service. Genuine spiritual authority is to be found only where the ministry of hearing, helping, bearing, proclaiming is carried out. Every cult of personality that emphasizes the distinguished qualities, virtues, talents of another person, even though these be of an altogether spiritual nature, is worldly and has no place in the Christian community. Indeed, it poisons the Christian community. I want us to, think, I want us to like ponder that for a second. What if you came to church on Sunday and nobody taught? What if you came to church on Sunday and that, that figure that you go to church for or that speaker, they weren't there? Would you still come? Or would you not see the value in it anymore? What if the gathering was just pre-gathering prayer and that's it? Would you continue to be a part of community or that be too uncomfortable, too challenging, we have a part of our culture that looks at political figures and celebrities as the place we receive our information. But the reality of it is we give those people authority in our life through no proof of who they are at all. In the Christian community, he says, authority is gained by service. You don't walk into a room and immediately have authority. You prove it by continuing to serve and love and care for the people around you. And then through that, you get an opportunity to speak into that. This is a big part of like what we did with Young Life. We go to schools and meet kids 
I wouldn't go, hey, this is my friend Misael. I'm going to preach to you the gospel right now at Springfield High School campus. Let's talk about it. Or do that weird thing where they try to get you into a conflict and then they like turn it around on you and they're like, oh, and you're sinful. Gotcha. Now you need Jesus. I totally tricked you. thought I was a nice person, but it turns out I'm actually really mean, but I still want you to know Jesus. There's no relationship built there. And in a model where you have to keep repeating the same thing over and over again, God says, listen, stop trying to build this big empire of Christianity and start serving. And through that, gain authority to be able to preach and share in people's lives. So over time, you know, like, when I was doing Young Life, like, I had two kids, Will and Misael, and I hung with them. We're still really good friends. We just ran a marathon together, like, two months ago. And, uh, it didn't start out like that. It wasn't like, hey, let's just be friends. This is going to be great. It started off with me consistently going to their school and like buying little Caesar's pizza and coming out and being like, hey, eat pizza with me. I know that's super weird, but here we are. So let's just kind of do it, all right? And we would talk and hang out. Then that led to a relationship. And then I officiated Misael's wedding. So how does it move from being like, I meet you at Springfield High School. You don't know Jesus. And now I'm doing your wedding. You trust me enough to do that? That's all gained through the work of building a relationship. Without that, without that relationship, your authority doesn't matter. You understand that? Like, if we don't serve each other, then who cares what you say? So, in the Christian community, this value and this ministry of authority has to come from a place of service first. And yet, in our culture, we don't value people because of their character, we value people because of their abilities. Service doesn't move the needle. You need a dynamic leader and a smooth talker. You're not supposed to trust anybody. Never give anybody authority over you because authority is repressive and oppressive in nature. Reject all authority. More dynamic leaders, less humble servants. So this creeps into the church. How do we serve that? How do we facilitate that, this ministry within our kingdom community? Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Seriously, I, I, just, I just said it. Okay, anyway, no, sorry. No, sorry. Okay, here we go. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The only competition that should exist in the church is how well I can build up the other person. I want to be the best at showing honor. Like imagine that. Where my, I hold, the only competition is who, is who honors people the most. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with 
all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we decide to practice this community of ministry, we are taking steps to not say what we shouldn't do, but rather the kind of character that we should embody. And when we do that, we don't get caught up being like, oh, I don't want to do this, or I'm scared of how this is going to come off. Instead, we're just going, I know at the end of the day, I'm serving in this community, and the community where this takes place, we can allow for things like people to deconstruct together in a community and walk with them through that. And I want to say this as we close. If you're in a phase in your life where you're in deconstruction, something has happened with a church leader or a family member or with your business or people in your life, you've been hurt by the church, I want to say that I'm really sorry. That should not have happened. But will you allow us as a community to come around you and try to rebuild that trust? Will you give us the opportunity? We're not going to be perfect. No community is perfect. But will you give us the opportunity to minister to you? Will you give us the opportunity to serve you? Not with any sort of subversive, manipulative purpose that you give more, or that you serve in the children's ministry, or that you bring donuts on Sunday morning. But so you can just know that at the end of the day, we're a community of the kingdom of God, flawed people trying the best we can to serve Jesus. And I just want to apologize on behalf of the church, globally. I take that on myself to tell you, like, if you've been hurt by the church, I'm sorry. If someone in your family has been hurt by the church, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a cousin, whatever, I'm sorry. Will you give us the opportunity to build the trust back? And if you're in a phase where you're just kind of like, I don't really know about this whole church thing, I don't know about this whole faith thing. I went when I was a kid, I went to youth group, I went to camps, and now I'm kind of like in this phase where I just don't understand all of the stuff going on. Will you allow us to walk through that with you? Will you allow your community to walk through that with you? Will you not instead leave community and try to figure it out on your own? Will you instead press yourself into community? And for those of you who are across the table from someone who shares these hard stories, will you just listen? Serve them by just listening and not speaking and do the best to minister and serve them in that environment. Then the community of God remembers that what we're supposed to do is live into this identity of simplicity of ministry. Remember that the core at the simplest form of the church is good. It is beneficial to all of us. Allow us to heal and work together as we move forward as a community. Let's pray. Jesus, we we thank you. We thank you for examples of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who um, gave their life put their life on the line so that we could have something like a church community. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us, the people you placed here that use their talents to benefit the body. We thank you for Sergio who brings coffee for us. We thank you for the people who serve in the kids' ministry. We thank you for the people who set up communion. And we thank you for those that 
are not involved in those things, but are serving other places in the community, Jesus. That are loving their neighbor. That are serving people in their workplace. That are listening. That are earning that right to be heard in somebody's life. We thank you for the young life leaders who go to campuses and meet with kids and build those relationships. We thank you for that. We thank you. We pray that you'd build this all up to serve each other. And would you bless us with a great, deep, rich community as we follow and pursue you with our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before I leave, I just want to say one thing. The idea of putting a a postage stamp on an envelope to saving thousands of lives was a small but very simple solution. The things we talked about today are not profound. They're the Christian experience. They're walking with Jesus. We don't need profound big fixes. We need the little things that we do that make the community stronger. So can we take on that simplicity together? Amen.